Kia ora e te and welcome to Tall Stories, Tales from the Built Environment, a podcast series by the New Zealand Institute of Building. Join us as we delve into personal stories about inspirational career journeys for people in design and construction, as you too build your own story. Hi, I'm Tommy Honey, and I am here today with Pamela Bell and Jed Finch of X-Frame. Jed, uh, perhaps you could tell me a bit about yourself and uh, a bit about X-Frame. Yeah, thanks, Tommy. Um, so I'm a architecture um, student, I guess you could call me. Um, I've been at uh, the Victoria University of Wellington for the last 10 years, and, and throughout my journey I've had uh, the opportunity to come up with a modular building system. Um, I was motivated by the waste problem that construction has and I went and worked overseas for a short period of time and came back to New Zealand and saw an opportunity to come up with a way of building that might not have the same waste impact that normal construction does. And so I've come up with a system, it's called X-Frame, it allows buildings to be put together and then taken back down again and changed and reconfigured over time. Um, and that started out just as an idea at the architecture school as a piece of research. Um, but in the last two or three years, it's really grown into a, a business with its own life. And, and it's an exciting journey that that's taken me on. Okay. And uh, I was going to say 25 words or less, but uh, how could you describe how X-Frame works to those listening to this podcast? In 25 words or less. I'll um, give you a few more. Yeah. Um, so basically, it's a, it's a self-braced diagrid frame. What that means, it's very structurally stable for earthquakes. Um, that stability means you can clip linings on and off in different finishes. So it gives you basically a very defined and reliable frame that goes into a building, unlike the normal frame. Um, and that means that we can create a an infrastructure or a set of parts that are easily interchangeable. And that interchangeability or that ease of change allows you to reuse it. Oh, can I jump in? Please. So what's so amazing about X-Frame is the efficiency story. So if you were going to build a wall in your house, you're going to go down to a retailer and buy a whole bunch of 4 by 2 and nails and cut it to shape and whack it up, right? Probably on the flat and then lift it up, right? So what X-Frame starts life as is a single sheet of plywood, if you can imagine, and then a computer that cuts it into pieces. Those pieces assemble into what is then the frame. And this is like your total at-home Lego jigsaw scenario, only at scale. So I just add that little piece in. It is so interesting and fascinating because it's mega, mega efficient. And how are these bits joined? Is it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, a mallet, essentially, force. Um, but the idea behind um, the part connection is that it's um, it's scalable in any direction. So if you need to make a wall panel that is three metres high or 1.2 metres high, you can use the same parts. And so you hit these parts together with a mallet and the wood clicks itself together. Um, and then we have a whole lot of um, reversible fixings like pressure clips and screws that come in and allow you to take the rest of it apart. So it's kind of like the skeleton, but not the skin. It's the bit underneath. Is it yeah, visible? It's the, is yeah, it's, so absolutely. X-frame itself is invisible and we want it to be invisible. You shouldn't go into a building and say, hey, that's X-frame. It should be a, a hidden product. 
But in saying that, the actual crux of, of waste management and construction is all of the other layers. You know, you need to, you can't just come up with a cool frame. You need to come up with the way that the, the linings fixed to the frame and the way the other layers of the building all join together. So it's much more about the relationships in the building. Than so the this won't stuff. be the first time, but I'm going to agree to disagree with Jed there. It should be visible. When you go into a building, you should be able to know that there's an amazing story behind the walls. This is the fascinating thing about when you're in the design and construction industry, isn't it? You start to think behind the walls until you get that view through either training um, on the job or at university or other tertiary education. You don't think beyond the wall, but the X-frame story is everything beyond the wall. And so I really think this should be visible. We should be talking about what's going on behind the wall. At a fundamental level, X-frame is telling us to rethink everything from the ground up and the way we build and yet it just slips in to existing and traditional building, especially in a non-structural interior kind of way, just seamlessly. So I think that's a really interesting paradox about it. At the one um, scale, it's, wow, let's rethink efficiency, circularity, what exactly we're doing every time we cut up anything and create a new building. And at the other um, phase, the only way you're going to get innovation across the line is to have these small incremental moves. So let's make it as small and as least intrusive and as easy to digest as possible because otherwise there's no change. We just stay the same. Yawn. <laughs> and I have to say, because I have seen it, but it's been some time since I have seen it set up of it, it is actually really beautiful in its skeletal nature. And often those things that, that are unseen and construction stay that way because they're not pretty. So um, could yeah, you, uh, the, the X means yeah. something to yeah. me because yeah. it goes cross and there are these little panel-y things and then there are other bits. So could you... Uh, you could show it off and, and we get a lot of people that are interested in bringing it to the to the front and they, they have different reasons for wanting to show it off. Some is um, they're wanting to come on the X-Frame story with us. So they want to almost tell the X-Frame story as part of their brand, which is really encouraging to see. So they see value in communicating to others that they are looking at ways of creating more efficient, more reusable, more um, long-term uh, infrastructure. And then a lot of architects, particularly early on, said to me, oh, gee, this is a beautiful system, but it'll never be practical in mainstream construction, but it's really beautiful. So you just you know, use it in instances where it's visible, pavilions and, and whatnot. I think for me, there's a beauty in finding instances where it's really practical and it really works, regardless of whether it's seen or not. I think also the iteration that Tommy would have seen was probably at a prefab NZ conference quite early on, and there has been a great degree of refinement. I was lucky enough to uh, go to Adelaide where it's being manufactured and to see some early iterations, and it's much more elegant and refined now. So I can understand why people would want to either use it in exposed interior situations as a screen or obviously closed in a structural yeah. situation. I guess as we've learnt more about the market, we've sort of said there's different applications for a product like this. And so um, there's instances where you want to use a lower quality material like a pine, plywood, um, and maybe that doesn't get shown off. But there's also instances where people really want to celebrate their geometry and that's where we, we swap the material out and we use a higher grade material and it becomes a much more story about the, the visual of X-Frame itself. So it's being yeah. used at the moment in commercial fit-outs uh, for banks across Australia, for example. And I think X-Frame's got a phone booth product, which is kind of cool like yeah, to yeah, create yeah. a little product. 
Yeah. Again, it came from research, right? So there was this blue sky thought about, um, you know, revolutionising house construction or residential construction. Obviously, that's the that's the um, long-term vision, but it's also the very difficult piece of the puzzle to solve because of just how complex residential construction is. And so as a company, I guess, the commercial story's been about finding really high-value use cases for X-Frame, and that's been in the bank fit-outs like Pam mentioned, but uh, more recently in things like small pop-up meeting rooms inside of larger spaces. So I think um, one- or two-person meeting rooms in libraries or universities or institutions makes a lot of sense because you get the efficiencies of large-scale construction, but you get the modularity and configurability, flexibility of a um, modular building system. Yeah. And so uh, fit-outs in banks sort of think, well, why aren't they using steel studs? I mean, surely that's got to be lightweight quicker. What's, what is the magic that this has uh, over the alternatives? I'm curious. I think we're, we're starting to see, which is really rewarding for me, we're starting to see, particularly in the larger commercial client, a real interest in looking at sustainable, reconfigurable options. And so they look at their portfolio of properties uh, some of the banking customers are extremely interesting because they might have 500 sites across a country and they're looking at that from a carbon point of view, from an ESG point of view, and that's saying, if I can put out a product that is reconfigurable, not only am I meeting all of my carbon goals, but I'm actually going to save money over a long period of time. It's almost like the pennies dropped and it makes a lot of sense for those big customers and, and my hope is that trickles down to some of the smaller customers. There's loads of different kinds of customers, right? One is the person who's doing the procurement, so they just want to look awesome for putting in something that's got circularity, that gives them some green credentials and, of course, has a cost bonus. The guys on the site who are installing the X-Frame, I went into an ANZ site in Brisbane and it was controlled by Lendlease. The site manager there was, we love these guys. They're in and out in three days. Their stuff could just get stacked really tidily. They, you know, make hardly any noise. There's no power tools virtually and it's all just done super cleanly and efficiently and they're in and out in three days as opposed to another type of fit out that would take twice as long, if not more. So there's all different customers, right? You've got to sell to the dudes on the site. You've got to sell to the folks in the ivory towers who are getting their little green ticks in their procurement journey. And in, so there's lots of different customers. And in three years' time when they want to change everything, you haven't got a, a skip outside full of jib dust and wrecked steel um, uh, Yes, the stories uh, from the site yeah. folks about the waste for all these interior fit-outs and changes of fashion um, were quite horrific. Yeah, so I can... Um, see how Jed was really motivated to make a change here. And Jed, how did the idea get traction? Because we've all seen fantastic ideas at architecture school, innovations of this idea and that idea that just kind of um, fade away. You know, how have you got longevity out of this? Yeah, longevity is a great word for this. Um, so the original, the journey started in 2017 in Masters of Architecture degree, and it's been a series of fortunate events. Um, very early on, the NZIOB, the Charitable Trust, gave $10,000 of seed money which was a big um, kick for me to go and build a pavilion to kind of show the industry what this could look like. And I guess it perked an interest in me in actually saying, well, when you build this stuff at full scale, you make a massive difference. You get a whole lot of interest and you learn a lot about it. And then from there, it's just been build, build, build. So I found some crazy early adopters at a build show in Auckland who um, just wanted some cabins built, just wanted some fit-outs built um, and went on a journey with them. A lot of things didn't work. We wasted a lot of money. Things went wrong, but we learned a lot. And uh, late, or early 2020, um, a commercial accelerator out of Australia came on board. 
they had the financial capacity to take something like this on um, and the interest and the incentive. And then having that support has allowed us to really put the hammer down. No longer it's just on my shoulders. It's a shared effort. They've got a large uh, vested interest in this going well. And so we share the responsibility of making sure that this is a success in, in some manner. This episode is proudly sponsored by Jib Plasterboard, your local plasterboard manufacturer. Jib Plasterboard offers a wide range of training programs and technical help for lining installation, fire resistance performance, noise control, wet area systems, and rigid air barrier solutions. Please call the Jib Helpline team on 0800 100 442 for technical support or register for a training session at jib.co.nz slash training and events. At what point in that journey, Jed, did you do the TEDx Valley talk in terms of getting yeah, ideas another, out there? Yeah, another big milestone, yeah, yeah. Uh, late 2019. Okay, yeah. cool. I reckon um, you can probably mark the journey with a lot of those types of points in terms of marketing and comms and just communicating new ideas. But a big thing is being picked up by Victoria in terms of the university and in terms of being picked up for that accelerator and then the Australian interest. There's, I guess there's a lot of um, hidden uh, commercialisation ecosystems in New Zealand that you might not be fully aware of that sit you know, alongside the university. And once you tap into the right people that know those resources, it really opens some doors that are quite surprising and it changes the way that you think about the research and the product and, and how you might bring it to market. Yeah. Do you mean like access to angel investment finance or do you mean access to... Um, folks who have got expertise and, and put Generally that way. the expertise, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, because it seemed, for me, it was like once you had the expertise and the knowledge in that space, the, the money side of things uh, would almost take care of itself because there was a bit of trust and a bit of sort of respect in, in doing the work. So, so to clarify, you're talking about the business expertise to get it tra traction or the The business expertise, yeah, yeah, to kind of um, shift me from a you know, a, a naive researcher into a bit of concrete. This is a product that people are going to have to buy and they're going to have to see value in that product. And what journey, just like Pam said, what journey am I taking them on with the product? Where do they see value from it? It's, it's a classic intersection, isn't it, between design and business. I mean, that's where the magic's going to happen. And that's where there's been a lot of hesitation to jump into that space in the past. You can get the whole way through architecture school and not talk about business. It's one of my personal beefs. Um, and similarly with business, there can be a really low understanding of the value of design. So I guess the perfect intersection is where those two are inextricably intertwined, right? Design and business. And also I, I'm maybe guessing here, but I imagine that within that ecosystem of that expertise that you talked about to progress these things, there aren't maybe a high proportion of construction type innovation projects. Yeah, absolutely, bang on, yeah, zero to one. In yeah. fact, yeah. when we went through, they were kind of like, oh, are we going to let a construction company through this ecosystem, you know? And and for good reason. I mean, if you look at the construction sector, you'd say, oh, this isn't a lucrative market, but um, there was the right people at the right time, um, very good support from the university, um, very good support from sort of the the wider construction sector to say, yes, this is something we want to accept. And that really pushed us through the, the door. Yeah, That's what you call a market maker, isn't it? Yeah. Just make your own niche and claim it. Well, I think it's also, it's interesting about um, 
in construction and building, I remember a lecturer at architecture school saying how we've been building houses the same way for 2,000 years. You know, the, the Romans had nails and bits of wood and hammers and uh, the, the the essential way we do things hasn't changed. And so in a, even though we think we're innovative, actually often the pathways for innovation are, are very, you know, very hard to find. And so being able to do it from a research idea, completely isolated or or not yet tethered to a, a construction ecosystem, the way that we're all kind of embedded in, I think is um, a real breakthrough in some ways. And I, I'm interested to know at what point you realised that you were on a journey and that it was this journey. I mean, did you start it thinking it was a stepping stone to some other big wonderful thing in the future or that it would be a millstone? Do, do you mean the point of no turning back? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, the the point of no yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I feel that now. Um, uh, yeah, great question. I went to architecture school wanting to do three years of study and go and work at Weta. So I had no interest in the profession at all. In fact, I thought it was pretty stodgily boring. However, I got to the end of the architecture degree and I was really enjoying university. I was having a great time making models and doing renders and thought this was fabulous. So I stayed on. And then I went and worked in a firm. I just had an opportunity through uh, my partner to work at an architecture firm in Malaysia and went to an enormous building site. You know, we're talking a a 30-story concrete building the size of an entire city block um, and was horrified, you know, like horrified by the extent of damage that was going on. And yes, it's in a, a developing nation, but from what I've seen in New Zealand and Australia, were, were no better. And so you look at the extent of development, it was just shocking. And and that kind of spurred me to say, well, I could go and make movies and have a great old time or I could try and solve a problem. And I think that was the that was The, kick up the, the conscious ass. kicking in. Yeah, exactly. And then there was a lot of thought about what the thesis would look like, but um, it started off about how to design a house really efficiently. So just like how to use as few materials as possible. Um, but as the, the research progressed, I found that no, minimal material is, is one thing and generally we've done that well because we've basically designed a cheap house already. You know, we've made houses as cheap as we possibly can, so all the material is already efficiently used. What if we could, you know, design it so that they were efficiently used in the second, third use? Um, but to answer your question, the point of no return, I think it's when the money started coming in and the, the investors were there and the checks started to be signed and, and the staff came on. And now there's a real, you know, feeling of responsibility to see this to its end, whatever that may be. So you can't say to the team on Friday night, I'm, I'm off to wetter on Monday, so yeah. good luck. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I have those, you know, after a bad day, it's easy to say, you know, let's jump into the movies again, but, you know, not for now. So how scalable is your idea? Which is always the innovation sector question, isn't it? So that's, uh, that's a key evolution of the company and this really uh, goes back to the having the business support um, and shaping the business model around, shaping the design around a business model that works. Um, we are a technology company now essentially and so that allows us to be scalable. We don't buy our own CNC equipment, we don't have our own factories, we don't do anything apart from digital workflows in-house. And so that means that we just tap into existing infrastructure, existing manufacturers, suppliers and installers, and we're essentially, dare I say it, trying to be an Uber in this space where we just hang out of the actual on-site work and provide the product into it. And so do you make the product or someone else does that? Someone else makes the yeah. product. So yeah. how are you, without too much detail, monetizing this? Is it a licensing thing or is it a... Yeah, we actually have a very simple way of um, 
costing the product and it's a royalty per sheet cut. So every sheet of plywood, we charge a royalty on that. And the way that works, um, it depends on the market and depends on the situation. So um, the shop fitting market, we engage directly with the end customer and say, you know, you'll contract us to build this and we'll subcontract the manufacturing and the installation. Um, but there are also instances where we act um, through a third party. So we just simply are engaged by, by someone licensing the technology to help with the design and fabrication and they go and deal with the contract. And that's the scalable model. So that's the issue with construction, right, is that we have to front load a lot of material costs and it becomes a very expensive exercise and risky exercise. And so we are currently working through ways to separate ourselves from this bogged down traditional construction model where everyone's fighting over a five cents. We want to try if it's even possible to separate ourselves from that. Without, I guess, losing control of the IP That's and right, the what they're doing, the brand. And the, and the presence it, of the product. It's an interesting yeah. kind of design-led platform approach yeah. that you can see offshore, right? Mm. Things like Frog, I think it is, out of San Francisco. And maybe turning the tables for a second on you, Mr. Tommy Honey, knowing that you've been through us at the Tech Futures Lab, lab yep. it would be great to hear a little bit about the project that you took through that, your platform approach. Sure. Because that totally relates in this where design and business entrepreneurship yeah. meets yeah. in the construction space. So very briefly, uh, I did my master's in, uh, in innovation, essentially, at the Tech Futures Lab in Auckland. And um, the idea I took through was called Slimby, um, shared living in my backyard, sort of a play on Nimby, no, not, not in my backyard. <laughs> so the, the name was perfect. And uh, I took the idea to the point where I didn't get money, if you like, after I finished, and many reflections on that. But the idea essentially was the circularity I was looking for was really the unused space in people's backyards as a site for construction or a site for living and taking that out of the hands of individuals having to do it necessarily by saying a house owner with a large backyard, spare space, we would put a prefab on there and find a tenant to live in it. And then that would return a small amount of money to the owner and a small amount of money to the investor who paid for the construction of the prefabs and the tenant had a happy place to live. And this was about five years ago when the property market was only in the third kind of meteoric rise, not its 18th. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, when you try to do that now, the return that you could give a homeowner um, was like maybe 1% of what their house was earning in a week just through the house inflation. Um, and it's evolved. There are evolutions of that model into do-it-yourself retirement villages, which I'm really interested in doing. But, you know, in that, I wouldn't build a thing. You just tell other people how to do it and clip the ticket in a very small way. And the only way the Slimby idea was going to get any traction was if it could uh, go offshore. And there are um, some organisations in California doing a very similar idea, but in a different way. So I'm interested in, you know, uh, my idea was as much about a relationship between three parties, homeowner, landlord and tenant, whereas yours is about this very elemental, reductive thing, which is, I guess, a, a panel, if you... Yep. At, at, at the end of the day. Really but, but ultimately about the ma the relationship between the client, the IP, and the manufacturer yep. and installation yep. too, right? Yep. Yeah, yep. Yep. all parts of yep. the recipe. Yep. And the story, like, you know, your Slimby brand, I mean, that almost would be enticing in its own right to have that, to be part of that story and that experience of shared living. Yeah, and, and people say, oh, I've got a... What's that on your back? And, oh, I've got a Slimby. Yeah, you that's know, right. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I met a young woman one. last week who's... Doing something in that space around a tech platform, but taking advantage of our new three-story limit, which is obviously 
um, a, a whole new phenomenon for the country to get their heads around. And so she's developing something called Terrace, T-E-R-R-A-S-E. So it'll be interesting to see. Again, it's about being that neutral technology platform and bringing the pieces in for the puzzle to deliver the solution. There was a prefab company in LA uh, that I looked into in my research. I can't remember their name, but they pivoted from they beautiful prefabs putting them into actually uh, offering a service with you tell them where your site was and they could tell you what you could do there and how to do it. So there was more to be earned in actually facilitating the advice to people. The prefab that they got in the end was just the final sell, if you like. But the barrier that people had was, I don't know what to do next. Mm. And uh, and that's where I'm interested in how your product might get traction in, say, a wider market, whether it's domestic or completely commercial. How do they come looking for this thing and know they want to have it? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. That's a really because, good question. Uh, and this is the conversation that um, has been had a little bit at Xtreme before, from what I can see, which is around a, a product versus a service. Yep. So a product is a wall. That's pretty obvious. A product is a phone booth. But really the service is giving you some green credentials on a plate, Here's my offering. I can make you look good from a green credential uh, point of view, as well as the ease of assembly, the speed to site, the light weight on your floor plate. Uh, I guess also slightly lighter on your pocket too. This cost advantage. So, I mean, it's got to hit you in a number of different ways, right? And, and the You've possible future of solution. dismantling and reuse, whether or not that's whether taken or up. not that's taken up. It's certainly the circularity concept, which we all need to be investigating more closely if we're going to have a light impact on the planet long term. How to answer that question. I guess <laughs> how we've thought about getting international scale has really been to do with how do we uh, uncouple ourselves from delivering the product into people's hands? So how do we give the basically the incentive to others to go and sell this product and make the most from it? Um, and it's those with existing capacity who want to offer something different in the market. And so even those people selling steel-framed buildings, we sit really nicely beside them because their customers can say, oh, actually, I want that today. I want something that is made of wood but has the same efficiencies and logic of a steel frame system. And so the market's big enough that it can have more than one player and it can have more than one thing going on. And so it's just finding those partners. And that's the scale opportunities. Thanks for listening to Tall Stories, Tales from the Built Environment, a podcast series by the New Zealand Institute of Building.